idea where those meatballs came from, but <laughs> we're starting a new, new series uh, for the next three weeks till death to us part. We're going to be talking about dating, relationships, marriage, conflict, um, and, and just as we start, we want to acknowledge that we all come to the table here with issues, right? And God has something to say to all of us. Maybe you're single and lonely. Maybe you're fighting fear, afraid that you may be single for the rest of your life, or you're fighting the temptation to settle for a warm body. God has a lot to say to you today. Maybe you're dating. You know, you're, you're infatuated, totally out of your right mind. It's glorious and wonderful, but you're wondering, how in the world do I date and, and, uh, as, as a follower of Jesus? Well, God has a lot to say to you as well. Maybe you're divorced or separated or even widowed and you've been betrayed and you've been hurt, you've been cheated upon, and this whole thing is like a sore subject to you, and you're wondering if this could ever happen again, if it could ever could happen again in your life, uh, and you're not even sure if you want this to happen. Well, I think God has much to say to you as well. Maybe you're married, happily or even unhappily, and uh, if you're happily married, maybe you're wondering, man, how do I do this? How do I pursue romance? How do I keep up with everything, uh, keep up with the kids and the yard work, yard work and paying the bills? And uh, just, just, you know, how do I do all of that and keep my romance alive with my wife? Well, God has a lot to say to you as well. If you're unhappily married, maybe you wish you were single, right? And the flames of your passion and any kind of romance has just died long ago. And you're wondering, how do I get that back? Or maybe you've even checked out at this point. Well, God has a lot to say to you. We're going to be looking uh, for the next three weeks in a book in the Bible called The Song of Songs. And uh, it's it's a, it's a very sexual uh, book uh, that, that was written, and the English doesn't do justice to, uh, to all the nuance that is, that is in Hebrew uh, of how risque this book is. And, and you know, we're going to keep it a little PG here, so no, nothing too, too big here. But, um, in fact, back then, young Jewish boys weren't even allowed to read this book of Song of Songs. That's how risque it was it is in the Hebrew. And it's so scandalous in some points that some people throughout church history have even argued that it shouldn't even be in the Bible, right? As if romantic love was a subject uh, that is not worthy of God's attention. Of course, we disagree. So uh, we're going to dive right in. We're going to look at the first couple chapters here. We're going to look at this couple as they look back. It's a married couple, and they are looking back on what attracted them to each other. And so chapter 1, verse 2, throughout the whole book, it's a dialogue between the, the man and the woman and, and a, a, a group of friends that surround them. So it's kind of poetic in nature, too. So in, in chapter 1 of uh, uh, Song of Songs, uh, she starts off in verse 2, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have all the ladies read this aloud, okay? Now, here's the thing. I'm not a lady, so I'm not going to be leading this, so you need to say this loud enough so that we can all hear it together. Okay, ready? Go for it. Ready? Go. Wow, right? I mean, that, that was beautiful, right? All the men are like, yes, amen, right? <laughs> I mean, they are not starting slow here, right? She starts off by identifying one of two different things that attracted her to him, and the first one is just physical attraction, 
right? The Bible gives us permission to be physically attracted to, to people and not be unspiritual in the process, right? She's basically saying, man, he's cute. He's really hot. He's really attractive. Now, in the church uh, that I attended in college, uh, the, and if you've ever been in campus ministry, I think this is a very, I mean, it's, it's a good thing. It's prevalent in campus ministries and university churches. But the right answer to the question, when somebody asks you what you were looking for in a future mate, uh, the answer was, first, what? They have to love Jesus, right? They have to have a servant's heart. They have a great personality, a good sense of humor. She has to be smart and athletic and all these things. And after listening all of these things, like somewhere near the bottom, you could finally say, well, she's got to be pretty or attractive or cute, right? And if you kind of put that first, it was almost like that's kind of unspiritual, right? What kind of man are you, right? Like it's almost like it's superficial. And what you are going to see is that... (laughs) We were all liars back then, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we, uh, physical attraction is, is something that is important when it comes to attraction. And we're going to see in the Song of Songs, romantic, passionate, physical attraction uh, is given to us as a desire, as a blessing from God. And so the one thing we can see even right off the bat as the book starts is this, that our sexuality right, is not the result of our fallen nature. If you go back to Genesis, right, uh, Adam and Eve, they were given their sexuality, and it's not the result uh, of their fallen nature. Now, when we are under sin and when we are in sin, you see the damage that this can do and, and the slavery that it leads to. But we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that because of this, it is possible to have a strong faith and a strong sex drive all at the same time. Right? It is possible to glorify God with your sexuality. But we often at the church, in the church segregate our sexuality over here and our spirituality over here uh, almost as if it is unspiritual to feel any kind of physical attraction. Now, could you imagine Adam when he first saw Eve? Imagine, right? They're naked in the garden and they're unashamed. Can you imagine looking at her and him going, wow, she's got a great personality. I don't think that's what he said, right? In fact, what does he say? He declares, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I mean, this is poetic, passionate language, right? This is longing and desire and beauty. And so one thing that we're going to see that we have to dispense of one of two myths that that is prevalent in our culture. And and the first myth that we have to dispense with dispense with, especially in the church, is this, that our sexuality is dirty and unspiritual. We need to get rid of that myth. It's a myth, and we're going to see Song of Songs smashes that. But the other myth that the Song of Songs is going to smash is this, that our sexuality is ours to do with whatever we want without consequence. Right? But she starts off here, saying, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth, right? This guy's a hunk, and I want him to kiss me. And all the guys in the room said, amen, right? All the guys in the room said, amen, right? Uh, But here's the thing. You cannot build a long-term relationship, you know this, just on physical attraction, on chemistry, because what happens, right? You get married a few years, a few decades, right? All of a sudden, you lose a little hair, you you grow a little belly, hypothetically, 
you've got to have more in common than just physical attraction. And this is where she goes on and and, uh, talks about the second thing that attracted her to uh, Solomon. So ladies, again, would you do the honors of reading verse three for us? She says, your name is like perfume poured out, right? Back then, your name stood for not what people called you, but it stood for who you were, your character and your identity, right? For example, in the Old Testament, they named places not on the basis of geography, but they named places based on what happened there, the character and the nature of that place, Right, they name their children on the basis of their character attributes. Even today, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we say that not because it's some magic formula that will make God answer our prayers, but we are appealing to the character of Jesus when we do that. And so the name is really important. When she talks about his name, she is referring to his character. Now, in Hebrew, the word for name literally means etching, kind of like the etching, the part of him that is written in stone, that is etched in stone, the part that will not change even after he has won her heart. And so she says, your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young woman love you. It's not because he's only physically attractive, but he, ha- he is a man of great character. And because, women, let's be honest, right? Guys, we can have a way of kind of figuring out what it is that you want us to be and then being that for a little while until we win you over, right? And so the name that a man has refers to not just uh, what people call him, but who he is, right? Uh, And women, you have to be friends or date a guy long enough to learn his name. Again, not the name that people call him, but learn to see, like, let him show you who he is. Not just when he's mad at somebody else. Who is he when he's mad at you? Who is he when, when, he, uh, when you hurt him? Who is he? What is the etching in his name, right? Wh- who is he when he is stressed, when he is under pressure? That reveals his name to you. You have to learn his name because that is the part of him that will not change. And I know you may have heard this before, but I'm going to say it again because it is so, so true. And you may not believe this, but it, it is true. It is far better to be single and lonely than to be married and lonely. I don't know how many lonely uh, wives I talk to. And they are more miserable than any singles that I ever talk to. And can I also say this, women especially those of you who are dating or engaged, if a man is pressing you to cross boundaries that displeases God, right, when you are dating, and he does that without remorse, without repentance, then here's the question I want you to ask. What makes you think that after marrying him, that, he will ch- that, that, that somehow something will change, that his fascination with the illicit will somehow disappear? If there is no fear of God before marriage, there may not be fear of God after marriage. If he chases after what is illicit now, 
uh, unless God grabs a hold of him and does something radically in his life, he will chase after what is illicit then. You must learn his name. And so this part is so important. And men, here's a question for us. Do you have a name that is worth trusting? What is your name? Who are you when nobody is looking? Who are you becoming? What is your name? We're going to jump down to uh, chapter 2, verse 7. And in their relationship, in their date, as they look back on their dating relationship, their relationship starts heating up, right? Um, sorry, ladies, but again, this is her kind of talking about uh, their relationship and just kind of describing it. So, ladies, again, one last time, if you would do us the, give us the privilege of reading God's word this morning. So, I mean, things are getting passionate and hot, right? His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. And just as soon as, it, like, the intensity builds up, it's right at this point that they immediately say to each other and to their friends, the daughters of Jerusalem around them, hey, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In fact, that phrase is repeated three times throughout the book. And it's important for us to know that this couple, this is really important. They are not religious prudes here, right? Their language throughout the book is explicit and sexual. It's okay that they're feeling this way, but they are a couple that wants to honor God. And so they say, do not arouse or awaken love until it can be fulfilled. One of the biggest issues that I think singles, single Christians have to wrestle with today is this question. How do you be sexual and godly at the same time? Because our sexual feelings uh, want to carry us to places that they shouldn't. And I'll say this, and I know it goes against the cultural grain, but even in the Christian world, I mean, the, the default response is, well, give in, Right? Being sexual and doing what you want uh, with your body, well, it's my body anyways, without consequence. Well, you know, she's my fiance, you know, so we're going to, all that, it, 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 is, it dishonors God. And so the, the, uh, the natural default is to be like, well, yeah, how do I be sexual and godly? Well, I, I just, you know, I, I pretend that this is godly. You know, as a youth pastor, and I recognize uh, this mean, I don't think this is even the question anymore in today's culture. But when I was a youth pastor many, many moons ago, right, one of the most frequently asked questions, especially by guys, they would come up to me kind of in a hushed voice, and they'd be like, hey, Pastor Sean, can I ask you a question? You know, I, I have this new girlfriend, and I, I want to know how far can I go without going too far? Right? Is that still a question today? Or is it just like, no, we'll just go all the way, right? I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm outdated. I don't, I don't know these things anymore. So on one end, right, is like hand-holding, which you're kind of like, okay, oh my goodness, okay, that, that's like my grandparents' generation. Can you get a little bit more like, you know, on the other end is like sexual intercourse, and in the middle is a whole range of this gray area, right? Everything from friends with benefits to like, you know, what, what, what can I do, right? Second base? Can I get to third base? If I can't do a home run or a grand slam, like at least third base, right? Well, notice that whenever you ask that question that way, you're already looking for loopholes, right? 
so instead of asking how far can we go, a better question to ask is how pure does God want us to be? And I recognize that this is not easy, right? Um, when my wife and I were dating, sometimes that meant that we could only hold hands because that was all that she could handle, right? And you believe that, right? <laughs> she could not keep her hands off of me. So I'd be like, Amy, no, right? You, <laughs> you believe that, right? We need to stop here. We can only hold hands because you, you're just going way too far, right? Sometimes we could kiss, and that wouldn't arouse or awaken love, but most of the time, we just had to be on guard. We had to fight the battle before the battle. And I know this. We discovered that if we were alone in my apartment, watching a movie late at night on a Friday night, cuddling on the couch, then we we're much more tempted to go much further than we should. And so which is easier, to wait until you get into that situation and then decide what you're going to do, or... or to not just get into that situation or to fight the battle before the battle actually happens. I'll, I'll tell you this, as frustrating at times as it was, as a married man, I wouldn't trade all that frustration for what God has given us in our marriage, right? And, and look, I, I know, again, in, in this culture, that sounds so old-fashioned, right? Some, you're just an old man, and yeah, I, I, I am an old man, right? But um, like, Today, I'll say this, this is, this is not about slavery. This is actually about freedom. I'll say it this way. Today, we are a culture of slaves pretending to be free. Scripture says that true freedom means not being enslaved to your passion, your desires, and your longings, right, and giving into it whenever you want. As a, as a corollary example, let me ask you this. Would you call somebody who can't stop eating and gives into every desire, every longing, every passion for food, as good and necessary as that is, would you call that person free? No way. They are enslaved to their desires and their passions. And likewise, when we give into our every desire, every longing, every passion, are we actually free or are we just slaves pretending to be free? And again, God is not a killjoy. He's not out to frustrate you. God is about protecting us in ways that uh, we don't even understand. And again, this is where, again, you know, we've been married for 17 and a half years, but I'm so glad that God has so much to say about this, right? Because our 17 and a half years is literally nothing compared to all the wisdom that we need to navigate through all the mystery and complexity of this thing called relationships and marriage. So does that mean that you have to be asexual? Absolutely not, right? No way. But here's what we see. Restraint is called for during different seasons, right? Restraint, and why does God call us to restraint and self-control? Especially if you're dating, this is so important. Restraint is called for in order to allow the other types of more important intimacies to grow and flourish. I'll say this. Physical intimacy can be so blinding, right? You get so smitten, you get so hung up on physical expressions of intimacy that you neglect the warning signs that are all around you. You get lost in the passion of the moment, and all of a sudden, you can't see that this person has some real anger issues. 
You can't see that this person has a lot of unresolved conflict. You can't see that this person thinks about nobody but him or herself. You can't see that because the power of physical intimacy is so blinding. And so I could say this again from talking to many of you and others. Dating can be a source of agony and pain and hurt, and it usually is. But it also can be a source of great discovery and growth. And it's really your choice which one it's going to be. Because married folks, let me ask you this, okay? Uh, and, and answer, right? This is not a rhetorical question. Married folks, is restraint called for in marriage? Yes or no? Absolutely it is, right? Right, you bet. I mean, single people, you need to know one of the biggest lies that I believed growing up was this. If, the, the, the thought in my mind was this. If I could just hold out until I get married, then everything will be great, right? I will never struggle with lust again. I'll never be sex, sexually frustrated again. My wife will never have a headache, and we'll just have sex every single day. That is a myth we believe. So you get married, you go on the honeymoon, it's fantastic, and then real life hits, and then you realize, oh, marriage doesn't solve the problem of lust. You know why? Because lust is not a physical issue. Lust is a spiritual issue. Men, married men, you know this, and you should, I mean, we'll tell all the single guys here, after you get married, it's not like lust goes away because it's in your heart. So what you realize is the reason why you show restraint now is because you're determining the kind of husband that you will become five, ten years from now. And if you have no fear of God now, how in the world do you know you will have fear of God then? So let me just say this last thing, right? For men and women, for all of us, actually, single, married, whatever, wherever we're at, this applies to all of us, because it talks about our character. What you're doing or not doing now matters. Okay, and let me talk to, to singles here and bring it, bring it into the marriage uh, uh, realm here too, right? People think that once they get married, that it's a new beginning, right? That uh, they get a clean slate, the past is past, and it's a brand new day. I mean, that's what people think when they get married, but it's not really true. It's not, right? Because you bring all of your past and present junk into the marriage, let me put it this way. I talk to a lot of couples who are going through a lot of different issues. I've never talked to a couple that's had a marriage problem. Okay? Instead, what I've discovered is that single people with problems get married. And then they have a troubled marriage. Okay? When you dig down, you discover you don't have a marriage problem. You have two single people problems that just somehow collided and exploded in marriage. And so there is no such thing as a marriage problem. There are only single people problems in a marriage. There, and their single people problems went with them to the altar, and they mistakenly thought that all those problems would go away, and now they think they have a marriage problem. So for those of you who aren't interested in becoming the kinds of people, the men and women that God wants you to be now, what you're doing now, right, is going to follow you around. Your relational past has a pesky way of showing up at the most inopportune times, right? 
And I will say this, singles, you can ask any married couple here. This is so, so important because most married couples will tell you that nobody ever sat them down and told them all of this before that they got married. And now all their deal, and now as they entered marriage, they were unprepared for the challenges that, that their problems that they brought into marriage came with. And so, again, let me just, again, drive that whole home point, this point home, right? Uh, and again, this, this applies to us married folks too, right? What you're doing or not doing now, who you are becoming now and in the future actually matters. Now, let me just say this. I've given messages like this in the past, and I don't, I don't like, I actually don't like giving messages like this, right? You know what happens after a message like this? Uh, you know, we sing, the, we sing the doxology, I'm in the back, and all the married folks, all the parents and all the grandparents come up to me and be like, son, that was a great message. And all the single folks, really, right, they, they walk out and nobody looks at me in the eye, right? All of you just like look down on the ground, like don't even want to say hi to me. As it, like, let me just say, you know, I, you singles, I love you. I really do. This is not about condemnation. Because here's the reality. We are all, we've all screwed up in this, right? Married men, right? Have you screwed up in this? I mean, I'm not just saying pre-marriage. I mean, even in marriage, we've all screwed up. And so we're all in the same boat. We are all in need need of God's grace and his forgiveness. And so this is what we need to remember. This is where the good news of Jesus comes in, right? A new beginning, a clean slate, a brand new day is not found in marriage. It is found where? In Jesus Christ. In him alone. So don't put your hope in your relationship or your fiance or your spouse. It is only found in what Jesus' accomplished work, his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And so that is what we're going to do. As we start off this series, it's going to be a doozy, right? Next week, we're going to talk about after you say I do, and then the week after, we're going to talk about before you say I quit. It's going to be a sobering message. Um, But let's recognize that we all, need the blood and body of Christ. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And so Jesus, we come to you with the weight of sin on our shoulders, of guilt and shame, of past deeds, of present attitudes, of fantasies, of romances that are illicit, And God, we recognize that we are all broken, which is why we are here today, to surrender that part of ourselves, to give it to you, and to allow you to reshape that and form that into something much more beautiful. And so God, because of your your son Jesus, we can all walk out of here with the confidence that we are forgiven, that we are made new, and that you have never given up on us, and that you are always with us. And so Jesus... We come to you with our worship. We come to you with our brokenness. We come to you with all that we are and all that we are not and ask that you would make it something beautiful in your eyes. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.